In West Side Story, there's a song, Something's Coming, Could Be, Who Knows. There's something due any day. I'll know it soon as it shows. Could it be pandemic influenza's around the corner? You're listening to a special healthcare policy segment on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Abramson. Dr. Abramson is the Weston M. Kelsey Professor and Chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Wake Forest University School of Medicine and the Physician-in-Chief of Brenner Children's Hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. From 1999 to 2003, Dr. Abramson was Chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Infectious Diseases. He serves on the Task Force on Immunizations and the Committee on Federal Government Affairs. He was most recently chair of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, also known as ASIP. Today we are discussing influenza and preparing for the next pandemic. Greetings, Dr. Abramson. It's my pleasure to have you joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Well, thank you for having me. Pandemic flu. A colleague of mine said, is it real or Memorex? We keep hearing about it. He wants to know, when is it coming? Well, it's absolutely real. There have been 10 pandemics in the last 300 years, and we know from history that they were occurring even before that. But the worst one that occurred that we know about was the one in 1918, where it wasn't just the very young and the old who were mainly dying, but young adults that were healthy, 20-year-olds. So pandemic is something to pay a lot of attention to, and I think that even the government has gotten the message that it's something they need to prepare for and actually have designated billions of dollars to preparing for it. Where are we now? Well, we're actually much further along. If you asked me two years ago if I thought we were anywhere near ready, the answer would have been flat out no. And in fact, in the first report about pandemic flu from the government and how to prepare for it, there wasn't one mention of children some of the issues specific to children. For instance, if the parents are too sick to take care of the child, what are you going to do with a young child? So we were nowhere near prepared for it two years ago. Now we're at a point where we're starting to build up the supply of vaccines and we're guessing, of course, about what the strain will be. But there's a lot of concern about an H5N1 strain. So the H5N1 strain, like the 1918 strain, which was an H1N1 strain, is one that's prevalent in birds and in fact, it was first detected because all, all these birds were dying. It started out in Asia. Now it's in birds in Europe, in the Middle East. And the only place it really hasn't been is in North America and South America yet. In the bird population and some other species, it's spread throughout most of the world. In Asia, what's happened is that in families that have chickens in their backyards, over 300 people have been infected. Almost all of them have been infected from direct contact with the chickens. So it does look like there have been a few that have, where the virus has passed human to human. That H5N1 virus in that population has a 60% mortality. Is that primarily like from a pneumonia or? Yeah, it's mainly from a pneumonia and there's a very strong cytokine response and a lot of things that remind you of the 1918 pandemic about how this virus is acting right now. The thing that's stopping it from being a pandemic is, at, at least to date, it really hasn't mutated from a genetic standpoint in a way that's allowed it to pass easily from human to human. What would have to happen to the virus itself. I have some understanding that the hemagglutinin antigen itself would have to 
somehow be modified to be recognized by human respiratory cells? So there'd have to be a modification. And in fact, you know, a story that's very interesting, but there's a person who went back and was able to go back to Alaska, unbury some people who had died in 1918, and they've actually been able to make the 1918 virus. And they're trying to use that 1918 virus to study that and understand how it developed the capacity to go person to person. In this case, they're doing it in animals and then try to go ahead and see if they can figure out what it would take for the H5N1 to do that. In the meantime, the country is starting to stock up on H5N1 vaccine and has made a huge step by one of the companies being able to create an adjuvant for that vaccine that's made the amount of virus protein that you need in each shot substantially less. And so it's made the need for growing huge amounts of H5N1 virus somewhat less problematic, though there's a little doubt in any of our minds that there'll likely be a shortage if there is a pandemic early on. And if there is a shortage, who gets the vaccine? That's a fascinating question. I actually was asked to participate in a government meeting that asked, all right, if we have a shortage of vaccine, how do we prioritize that vaccine? And, you know, initially you have to go at a 100,000-foot level and say, what's going to be the most important factor? Are you going to try to prevent deaths and hospitalization? Are you going to try to impact the effect on the economy? Are you going to try to do a mixture of both? And so this group I was with and included four ethicists from four different universities. John, if I can just keep people on the edge of their seat here for a moment. If you're just joining us, welcome to a special segment on healthcare policy on ReachMD XM157 the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and my guest today is Dr. John Abramson. We're discussing preparing for pandemic flu. So you're beginning to talk to us about who would get the vaccine if there was a shortage. Now, please continue. So some of us said, all right, if there's a shortage, obviously you need a certain amount of infrastructure. You'd need a certain amount of police, a certain amount of utility workers, et cetera. Then you may want to immunize high-risk people you know, like somebody who has asthma or, or somebody who has chronic lung disease, an adult. But then once you start getting the populations that are normally healthy, who would you immunize first? And myself being a pediatrician and some of the other people there, I would say, well, of course we want to immunize children first because that's the most life years we can save. If you immunize a two-year-old versus an 80-year-old, you're more likely to have a more impact on it. <laughs> the future for the country. Yeah, yeah. The ethicists initially didn't like that idea. But as they took these recommendations and started going around into public meetings and asking groups what they thought, many of these public meetings had a lot of grandparents in them. And almost to the person, these grandparents would say, if you ask me, if, I, if my family has one dose of vaccine and it's a choice between me getting it and my grandchild getting it, it's no choice. My grandchild's getting it. So the final recommendation about prioritization isn't done yet, but I've been told that the public input has, has been taken into account. So it will be interesting to see what the final prioritization is when it comes out. Other treatments, are anybody working on, and probably they are, but an antibiotic for the H5N1 strain? Yeah, they're working on antivirals, and uh, there are two antineuraminidase antivirals that they're starting to stock up. And in fact, states are starting to stock it up with some federal uh, dollar help so that you can go in and people who get sick treat them. It's going to be hard to use these antivirals for prophylaxis because there's not going to be enough of them. So basically the idea is the vaccines would be used to prevent it, antivirals would be used to treat it, 
and they're certainly part of the uh, armamentarium that's being developed for the next pandemic. The nice thing about the antivirals is that as long as it's an influenza A or influenza B, which is almost has to be one of those. And in fact, pandemics are almost always influenza A. I don't know of any influenza B that caused the pandemic. The antivirals hopefully will be effective. How many years do we have to prepare for pandemic flu that we'd reach the point that we have sufficient vaccines, sufficient antivirals? Do we have a window here of two, three years that we might make it? The H5N1, I think the government's plan is to have enough doses in the next few years that it could protect most of it, if not all, the population. But we don't know for sure it would be the H5N1, so they're also working on smaller amounts of some other influenza viruses like H9N2. And then you're saying that the current neuraminidase inhibitors would be effective against other strains of influenza and B? They should be. Um, obviously, you worry about resistance, but to date, it's been relatively uncommon. And what about non-pharmacological means? Well, people are working on that, particularly with the 1918 virus and in animal models, looking if we can modify, for instance, the huge cytokine storm that might occur and is thought to be part of the disease process with H5N1 and may well have been part of the disease process with the 1918 one. Also, a lot of people don't die of the flu virus itself, but they die of secondary uh, bacterial infections. So antibacterials are also being stockpiled. Speaking about immunization and you said dying of other causes, there's also a large number of underinsured and underimmunized adults. Is there something that they should be doing, such as I'm thinking of Pneumovax, for instance, for the adult population? Well, right now, those who are older than um, 50 are recommended to get flu vaccine on a you know on an annual basis. And the pneumovax, which is the non-conjugated pneumococcal vaccine, 65 and older. So for those who's recommended, they absolutely ought to be getting it. And one thing, when I was on the HIP, we were working our way towards was actual annual influenza vaccination of all children. And I would see that eventually that might also be all adults. So a routine recommendation What's hoped eventually is that we'll actually be able to create a flu vaccine where you don't have to give it every year. Well, that would be nice. It would be nice. My patients would line up for that one. There you go. Other mechanisms, such as in 1918, they used quarantine. Children didn't attend school. Yeah, and all those are now, you can go to cdc.gov internet site, and there's a part that's for pandemic flu, and it has recommendations for various groups, for businesses. What do you have to think about? I'll give you a good example of a major grocery store chain already has a policy in place that if the pandemic occurs, you will call in to pick up your groceries, you will drive up to the store, you will not get out of your car, you will not go into the store, and the people working in the store will come put them in your trunk. Are the schools going to internet education? Well, schools are looking at that, and one of the concerns is that there may not be enough internet capacity to do that in many places. And there's plans of when would you close down schools. But if you close down schools, you can't not just close down schools. You have to close down malls. You have to close down uh, because to close down a school and have all the kids congregating in a mall doesn't make any sense. And so they actually have those plans out on that internet site that says if the death rate is a certain amount, here's what you do. If it gets higher, here's what you do. And it gets more and more stringent. If you had a take-home message to the physician listeners as to what they should do as the next step in preparedness for a pandemic flu. Is there something they should be doing now? Yeah, go to CDC.gov website and you'll see a whole set of recommendations for physicians. 
you'll see a whole set of recommendations for businesses, some of them that pertain to physicians, and then a whole set of recommendations for families. I think that there are really good recommendations on that website. So it's not quite as bleak as one might have thought just even two years ago. No. And again, 1918 was the worst pandemic by far. The 1957 and 1968 pandemics were nowhere near as bad, though they were worse than just the regular flu year. I'd like to thank Dr. John Abramson, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing preparing for pandemic flu. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to a special healthcare policy segment on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and enjoy our new on-demand and podcast features, allowing you access to our entire program library. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.